Jones. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And Colin, we, we catch ourselves here at night, sitting by the campfire. This is not a fake recording of fire, it's a beautiful hearth burning next to us. We sit outside in the Suffolk countryside. It's very nice. Beltane. It's that time of the year, the ancient Celtic festival where a fire would have been burnt. So this seemed like an appropriate time for us to have a podcast about fire. Okay. Which is an element dear to my heart. So I'm going to start with something left field. Right. You knew I would, didn't you? Yeah. So we'll explore areas around fire being essential to the human condition since we first learned to light them. And we'll talk about the spiritual significance of fire. But I'm going to begin with my direct experience of fire, which is um, we keep a, a sweat lodge, like a Native American ceremony, a meditative ceremony, under a sauna-like conditions of hot rocks in a tent. And my job is to, is to keep the fire. So the rocks are built into the fire. You heat the rocks to a high temperature, bring them into this covered enclosure, throw water on them. It's like a sauna, but with a, uh, an intention spirituality to it and the job of the firekeeper when I was first given it to me just seemed simple I love fire I like lighting fires it seemed like mm. a, a natural mm. act of working with an element that we all know some people love it some people don't I love fire so I took it as a very mechanical task lighting the fire heating the rocks getting sweaty grimy covered in ash hard physical work for a couple of hours heating these sort of lump-sized rocks to high temperature and a lot of people spoke to me about the the relationship you will have with fire and I never really got that it was it's a it's a thing that might burn me and I had to be careful around that. Mm. the fire will speak to you and tell you what it needs and how it wants to work with the rocks and the, the reverence you'll have to give the fire and I I kind of nodded sagely having no idea what that meant um, but I carried on with the job and, and probably for two or three years worked with the fire, heated the rocks, brought them into the lodge and loved it. It was like being out on the land, it was my meditation with nature, an excuse to sit by the fire winter and summer, heat the rocks on my own while everyone else was in the lodge. And then I had some revelation really about the fire because we, we decided to run a lodge where some other people would run it and I was going to be one of the participants, unusual for me. So I got ready to be in the lodge along with everybody else and went nowhere near the, the fire. It's a sort of ceremonial space. Um, but when the time came, we all gathered up in a line and approached the fire to go into the lodge. And it was like, um, it's like a shock in the stomach because the fire was there burning and I heard its voice in my head. I saw the living fire and really felt that this thing was a a being alive and something fundamental to the human condition. And I will never forget that moment of awareness of the, the vitality of fire, the relationship it has with us. So I'd like to explore, to begin with, right. whether fire's had a similar place for you and what, what fire means to you. My own personal experience of fire has been entirely outside of the ceremonial context that you spoke so eloquently about so you, you talk about the fire not only have any significance to that that ritual or that um, 
that experience. Um, whereas my experience of fire is different. It's been very present in my life, right from the fire that burned in the grate a lot of the time in the house where I was raised, um, and, and in fact, to a certain extent, burned all the time because all of our hot water was heated by uh, a stove that burned wood, and so fire was always burning. And so the first thing to, to say is that to I completely can understand the idea that fire is life um, because in the house where I was raised if the fire went out there was no warmth and there was no hot water so to keep that thing fed was equal to keeping us fed almost. And my other experience of fire has been that the not, not the opposite of that, but certainly the extension of that, entirely outdoors. And so it's uh, it's been the centre of lots of great evenings of my life, of song and of music and of camaraderie. And it's also, uh, and, and it's been a, a place, a gathering point for me, when it, whether it's been, you know, camping out in in the wild or if it's been just friends at the bottom of the garden all of those things have included fire at its center and it's been the a place where we've we've gravitated towards like like moths not only light but also heat but also it seemed to have this great freeing quality where suddenly you know we some inhibitions were lost and we were able to sing I don't know what it, the proclaimers uh, at the top of our voices to the accompaniment of a guitar, and that has been um, so. That that's my other experience of fire as a, as a thing that brings people together. And that's a great point to move to because um, I've always been fascinated the role of fire for liberating people. Uh, just like we're sat here by the fire now, there's an ability to have different quality to conversations and experiences, mm. and that's actually been proven somewhat scientifically uh, there's a couple of different studies in the US and anthropologist Polly Weissner um, analysed the conversations of indigenous peoples and you, you can track percentage wise how different the conversations are in the daytime and the quality of the conversations that had around the campfire so for example she listened to um, transcriptions recordings so it's like a remote study and um, at night, 81% of conversations revolve around stories. You know, you contrast that with the daytime, and it's something like 34% around mm. stories. Um, and I can't resist quoting these, because they're fascinating figures. Um, daytime conversations, 34% around stories. And I won't quote all the figures, 16% around jokes. Right. Um, sorry, I've got this wrong. It's 6% around stories. The bit that fascinates me is 34% around complaints. <laughs> so we spend daytime conversations <laughs> complaining, b- bitching about life, spending just 6% on stories, 16% on dokes, and, and also to 31% economic issues. Now, right. in tribal societies, that related to hunting for food. So we spend a lot of time on bitching about stuff talking about economics and food yeah. and a little bit of time tiny bit of time on stories and jokes 
81% of conversations at night around the campfire, and just 7% on complaining, which is fascinating, 4% on economic issues. So it really seems that at night people mellow out, they look for entertainment, and maybe there's something about the darkness that liberates people to talk about things that mm. really matter to them. Yeah, our, our masks drop a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So we don't have to appear. It's it's interesting. What? Why? So why do you think you say? So it's obvious that those numbers show that that's the case. Where we get around the campfire and suddenly that's the right moment for telling stories. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I'm going to turn it back to the spirituality. The spirituality I began at the beginning, because I think that um, just as lighting a candle, which so many people light candles in their homes mm. that lighting a foul fire allows us to go into another state, a meditative state maybe, but certainly a liberated state of um, dropping our guard, allowing the focus to shift. Does that explain, does that answer the question really? It's like, you know, there, there was a study where, that looked at um, people's blood pressure. This was just looking at videos of a fire, an experiment that just looked at showing people a video of a fire and, and their blood pressure noticeably dropped. Um, their attention became more relaxed the longer they focused on the flames and it made them more sociable. Mm. So it's like allowing the brain to freewheel into a different state. And the sociable thing I definitely recognise as as I explained in my experience, very fire being around a fire is a very sociable thing and a very few people e- even the kind of how do I say this? Even the people who roughing for roughing it isn't a thing. <laughs> so the people you know don't really want their clothes to smell of smoke. They'd rather they smelled of we're Chanel. Talk, we're talking glamping now. Yeah. Possibly, well, I, yeah. I guess we are. E- even those who naturally tend towards not having and enjoying outdoor experiences enjoy being round a fire. Mm-hmm. They. They do relax, as you say, but I suppose my it partly answers my question, and we may get onto it later. But the storytelling thing is really fascinating. So I can completely see why we relax and we become more social. But I wonder why our thoughts turn to recounting stories, and I'm I'm sure that refers to not doesn't all have to be kind of folk tales and legends. Um, but even stories about our experiences and stories about the day we've just had, whereas they feature not much at all in our daytime conversations, get to nighttime and we get around a fire, and suddenly those things come more naturally. I think it's, um, let's look at, uh, I think we've touched upon this and we talked about light in a previous podcast. If your day is constricted by the times when the sun is in the sky, and generally in the Northern Hemisphere, for most of the year, it feels like quite a short period. So you're going to pack in all the chores and the tasks and the work that you need to do. Um, we still do that to some extent, even though we have electricity, because we sit around a laptop mm. and continue working. Um, but I think the, uh, the use of fire allowed people to extend the day. So the work finished, the day is extended. But that period is, is generally not given over to work-related tasks. Is given over to that freewheeling, and I think it. Um, my guess would be it's kind of an integral part of the human condition, because it took us from a survival mode, of functioning in the daytime, to giving us that 
extra time. We weren't sleeping. Mm. We had an extra part of the day in which we were able to share cultural stories, learn how to do things. So why in the human evolution do we now respond to fire in that way? And, and you're right, you touched on it a little bit there, so it not only gives us light and extends our thinking and working time, but I suppose also when you think about our ancestors, it also had other benefits. It, it, that additional light meant that the darkness then wasn't quite so ulterior, wasn't quite so dangerous, um, had the benefit of being something, I don't know, that, that maybe scared predators away as well, that, that kept them away, it has a destructive, it, it can be turned into a weapon, and so there were, I guess, many advantages that fire brought to our ancestors that we still retain a memory of I, today. I, I, so we can relax at night because the wolves will be kept <laughs> at bay by the fire. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, when the theme of our podcast is the human experience in the non-human world, fire clearly allowed us to have a whole new relationship mm. with the non-human world, whether that meant the darkness and spirits or whether it meant big predators with claws and teeth that were coming to eat you. That gave you uh, something different in your armory and a whole part of your social structure mm. that allowed you to function differently to every other creature in the natural world. So yeah, I, I get it. Naturally, I think there's kind of more to it than that because I think we developed a tool, but it's still, we related to it in a way and continue to relate to fire in a way that that is different to many other elements, I think. You know, fire is, it's noted as a thing that when we, we think of fire, fiery people, it's passion and spirit and creativity and light a fire under something or let the fire burn. We, we associate it with um, energy and vitality. So it, it sort of has a, a symbolic power for us too. It's, I, I think that that's, it's inbuilt. We're here now, you know, gazing into these sort of brightly glowing embers. And it's impossible not to, not to see that life force, that thing which is burning something destructively away, or the chemical process is the opposite of that, really. It's mm. building things up. But nevertheless, it feels like you're burning away something to give you something. And I, Whatever that, the mixture of those things you mentioned is, it is quite hypnotic. And I remember eating in a restaurant once with some colleagues. Uh, uh, attached to the wall was an enormous sort of 60-inch LCD flat-screen television with, a, with the image, the film of a fire burning on it. Um, and it, it completely didn't hypnotise me. <laughs> um, in, it, was, it was so far away from the experience that we're having now of being here next to this fire burning we can feel its warmth mm -hmm. we can see the depth of color um, we can see the different colored flames right from the from those darkest oranges right through to those blues where those gases are burning off and it becomes so much more than you know we've, we've just spent a little bit of time dissecting the the physics of the fire um, but actually when you're around it it becomes so much more than that.
the gift of fire to to humans is something that we I think cultures have studied invented myths legends or found a way to credit it in some way because it, it it's an almost supernatural ability we have mm. to go beyond well a to understand the science of how fire works b to use it as a tool but see how that is a is a thing that we look into and and receive something just as you described not receiving it mm. through through a tv screen and I, and i think that's that's something that fascinates me because you know you've got um in greek myth you've got prometheus stealing fire from the gods to give it to man um and there's a wonderful cherokee legend that talks about Iktomi, the grandmother spider who stole fire from the sun hid it in a clay pot and gave it to the people so they could see in the darkness you know and, and that to me is we we are casting around for why we as humans have this gift that, that the rest of the natural world doesn't that gives us so much yeah. on top of that clearly we've used it as an ecological tool now that also fascinates me because we've we have the ability to intentionally modify the landscape in a way that yeah. no other creature easily possesses. Yeah, and and I, I don't think I've properly been aware until recently of the extent which certain human cultures used fire to modify its landscape and effectively use it to garden the natural world and to make sure that that landscape brought forth more fruit in longer seasons mm. and uh, created landscapes which in which the the animals in which they depended on for their prey could thrive and there's a there is a fantastic book uh, highly controversial to a certain extent um, called the biggest estate on earth mm. and the name of the author escapes me I'm ashamed to say but we will put the details on the website and he talks about how the Aboriginal peoples of Australia use fire extensively um, to modify the landscape, so much so that when um, the first um, English um, people arrived, first Westerners arrived there, they described it as looking like a large country estate. And so you think about any, you know, Chatsworth estate um, in the North Country there, um, where it's this lovely parkland with scattered trees and maybe a lake and grassland sloping down towards the lake. When they arrived in Australia, they described the landscape looking like that. And um, this author posits that the reason for that is that the Aboriginal peoples, one method that they used was fire um, to create those landscapes in order that it brought forth enough food in enough abundance to feed them all year long, which is... um, it's fascinating and I don't know enough about how other cultures use that uh, across the world to say whether that had uh, any similarities with other parts of the globe. Um, but it is something that um, struck me as being, um, it must, they must have had that knowledge for a very, very long time. Yeah, they must have observed nature. Um, in all its faucets, they must have observed lightning strikes and bushfires and forest fires. And somehow learnt to mimic that and it's really interesting because the, the other the other profound experience I had with fire didn't involve fire at all it involved the remnants of fire 
and I think it was the first time I went to Yellowstone National Park and it it's really kind of shocking the first time you go there because vast swathes of forested covered hillside are dead and burnt from great fires that raged across Yellowstone and and interestingly that stemmed from a policy of reversing a national park policy of putting out any fires that arose to understanding that the ecology of the place relied mm. to some extent on fire you know that some seeds in the ground would only germinate after the impact of fire that fresh um, growth particularly pasture was beneficial to grazing animals and that would only happen after fire so the national park took a policy of not putting out forest fires and something like 60 percent of yellowstone burned and it came you know terrifyingly close to burning down many um, historic structures including old faithful lodge which in itself is timber built mm. um, so they had to protect it um, but i remember being shocked a little dismayed but also um, it informed the entirety of my many many visits to yellowstone throughout because those those dead forests were um, they were a haven for birds like woodpeckers uh, it was a really fascinating area where grazing animals and bears would focus on when the spring growth came through and incredibly easy to see them mm. and if you think about aboriginal cultures I guess burning the landscape in order perhaps to more easily hunt animals the same is happening in these big burnt forest landscapes so, um, so yeah that's my I, I, fire as an ecological tool is, is interesting and the, I suppose the extension of that is to understand that having once been and still to a certain extent is an ecological tool whether that's wielded by nature or, or wielded by man is that then as man started to develop its world all of the steps it took to keep that destruction at bay and you, you know sort of the medieval developed world you know, nothing was more destructive. Mm. Nothing held as much fear as a fire, because it would rip through these towns and cities that were, you know, cheek by jowl timber buildings, places like um, Bergen in Norway, and you know, of course, the Great Fire of London, um, which kind of so we spent a long time developing our building techniques and our technologies to keep that stuff at bay but were happy then to, in, in a place where it could run, where the fire, as it were, could run free, we were happy for it to be wild out there, and we were happy for it to destroy things out there, and we had a certain understanding that that helped the landscape. But bringing it into our homes, or close to our homes, always had a certain danger about it, um, but was also necessary. So it was, we'd, we'd kind of made this deal with fire where we understood its risks and we understood its potential dangers and problems but we needed it in our homes we needed it close to us to cook and to um, and to heat water and, and all those things we mentioned earlier and that gives it a whole new that 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 makes fire something unique in our society yeah I, I think nothing else it's a really good point nothing else holds that inherent it's a nourishment and it's a destructive danger mm. to us and we wield it with care. Uh, funny enough, it's interesting you mentioned the Great Fire of London. I'd forgotten that just a few months ago I went to Monument 
know if right. you've ever been there. You know, monument is yeah. a monument for those who've not been there to the Great Fire of London. I'm equally fascinated by wild landscapes and great cities and cultures. Um, but I struggle sometimes with London because it seems to have lost so much of its character to modern buildings, and particularly around monument. There, you know, there's glass monstrosities everywhere. You lose the the inherent ancient character of London, so you can't help being there, wondering and wishing to see what it used to be like. Mm. And, and that's the other thing that fire takes so much away. I think that's really interesting. I've been looking a lot at Anglo-Saxon England recently, and and, and what we know of those times and uh, particularly the uh, the transition from the settlement of the country to what made the English English for example but nearly all those early manuscripts that tell us of that have burned in fires mm. some as recent as the 19th century yeah. and you think it's a tragedy it breaks your heart to think of those things that you'd love to read that have gone but also in talking about um, Bronze Age settlements here in the UK recently in a place called Must Farm near Peterborough in Cambridgeshire over the last sort of few years they've been doing an excavation on a Bronze Age settlement um, that had been unearthed at this farm in a, in a sort of piece of ancient Fenland and that has been an extraordinarily illuminating um, archaeological dig, throwing up all sorts of artefacts and buildings, wooden building structures um, that have shed an awful lot of light on how that community lived. And the reason it's so well preserved is that it burned in a fire and the whole settlement, they, they believe, went up in flames and the whole settlement collapsed into the fen and the settlement just moved on. <laughs> so the fire burnt it dropped it to the ground and there it is preserved in all of its detail and so interesting you say fire has destroyed some of the most valuable records in the case of must farm in cambridgeshire it has now preserved a hugely valuable record hmm. of bronze age life in britain that's really fascinating i didn't know that <laughs> well i love the fact that that fire has both those qualities to it and i love the fact that um I suppose what would have started out as a tool to separate us from the natural world to some extent is also something that many cultures use to connect them to the natural world. So it has all that power to it. And I suppose returning to how we began this podcast, we're discussing Beltane as a, as a Celtic festival commemorating that beginning of May, the transition from sort of uh, into spring and into summer and the winter months and it, it really Beltane originates from Irish and Scottish descent where you would have looked at um, the pasture animals being brought out of winter domicile and put on the land. Uh, the fire was lit as a sort of uh, honouring and a ceremonial part of the ending of the winter sort of, and, and literally from burning off harmful substances and it carries on as a symbolic ritual. The cattle were driven through the smoke of the fires, mm. and, and that had that was supposed to have had a cleansing. Yeah, property. yeah, and, and I mean it, it sort of uh, included humans jumping through the smoke themselves, and of course smoke from fire is still 
in many cultures used as a, a smudging, mm. a purification, uh, a, a cleansing in some way. And yeah, yeah, I guess you might argue that comes from a fumigation point of view. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, so those rituals, uh, especially in South America, are associated with spiritual journeys. Um, the, the, the accounts of that and the footage of that certain often start with um, smouldering leaves yep. or smouldering yep. brush. Um, that is tapped onto the shoulders and torso of the person who's about to go through that, the ceremony. Absolutely, and uh, even when I do some sort of spiritual work, it might be with um, uh, American white sage, it's very pungent, or it can be UK plants that give off mugworts, one in the mm. UK gives off a very yeah. particularly good smoke when burned, yeah. and, um, and it leads to a transformative process. So I suppose, you know, you have that smudging the purification but part of Beltane also was um, burning torches from those fires that were lit went to light all the fires in the homes of the people involved so there was a symbolic renewal there you had to douse all the fires in all the homes in the community and relight them from mm. the torch of this fire so it's hard to see that as you know having a organic function it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come from a a logical perspective do you think that's a forerunner to the more extreme uses of fire in our history and i suppose i'm i'm now i'm now back to um sort of european history because it is what i know best but where you know when when we wanted to kill a witch in the 16th century um, or the 15th century, we chose fire mm -hmm. um, to do that. Was that a, do, you, do you think some of that's the, the forerunner of that more extreme religious belief that the really only that you can only get that purity from? In this case, they believed evil by burning, um, by heat, um, and the intensity of that is the only thing that could give us that that, that cleanliness again. I think that's really accurate. I think that's really good. And, you know, the, the fires of hell are still the thing that could be the ultimate mm. torture. But, it, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that that would be a, a reason for it. It's interesting, though, because fire has um, that dual nature at its heart, even when you talk about things like that, because so many creatures, like the phoenix, for example, are reborn from fire. Mm. So it actually, it's a life giver as well yeah. as a life taker yeah. and burning yeah. things down. and. And there are some there are some biblical and religious texts that talks of, that talk about baptisms of fire. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a phrase we still use, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's sort of just in you know you give someone a baptism of fire. It's about sending them into, just chucking them in at the deep end, and and, and they learn through those yeah. experiences. So it's, it still has this um, in our society, even though it's it's much less. Um, religiously driven now it still has in our society this symbolism of cleansing and purifying so, i love that i guess i wanted to move on to um to that really because fire is associated with fantastical beings right um now i've mentioned the phoenix um salamanders are yeah. associated with fire yeah. sort of elemental entities connected with fire and it's not it's not your not your basic garden lizard is it it's a fantastical creature mm. so why is it that we associate i know we have water beasts and i guess we have fantastical beasts in the air but the fire seems to talk in particular about 
there are fiery horses there are mythical dogs with blazing eyes of fire you know there's a lot around that it feels as if the salamander is an easier one to answer because for many salamander species their very appearance those sort of snaking um, yellow sometimes green sometimes uh, very orange markings that they have on them look like flames and it's kind of easy for people to it's easy for me to see how people would draw those parallels however there are other things like the phoenix um, that are much harder to understand why people's um, beliefs and imaginations made that leap and, and got to that because whereas you might see a, a shiny skinned fire coloured salamander as being this um, fire born impervious being to have a bird with its feathers um, and all of its kind of you know physical weaknesses rise from the flames I mean civilizations and, and people must have known that you know when you throw a bird on the fire <laughs> it's not a good result <laughs> no <laughs> something happens and it isn't that a magical phoenix is reborn and so it's interesting that but as you say we now use the image of the phoenix as a as a rebirth something that has gone very wrong suddenly becomes very right and it rises from the flames and there must have been something about that 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 led those um, those individuals to believe that that to be, to have something to, to to place some significance on that imagery. I agree, and, and it's like um, it's like everything associated with dragons, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's it's a it's a nurturing environment for a dragon fire, and it carries fire with it. Mm. You know, and, and that's again on a logical level, it's so unlikely <laughs> that that that's what it would do. But that's the association that we have with it more than say i think the fecundity of the ocean which right. is a great provider i mean it's you know, a huge amount of human food comes from the ocean mm. yet you know in, in many spiritual traditions in many uh, ways the artists view fire it's a it's a creative element and, and that's fascinating something that we think of as destroying well we also this is really heavy-handed but you think <laughs> about um I've done, um, I went to an exhibition recently f um, of the brilliant um, sort of wildlife natural artist Nick Pollard and he works or has worked in charcoal and artists that work in charcoal rely on a medium that has passed through this process, that mm -hmm. has passed through the fire and the, they can only get the depth of what they need um, because that wood has been burned. And, and you know what's left of it is its carbon and that's what they use to create their art and so I, I don't doubt that a lot of people see that as um, a creative mechanism because in some cases it's literally the yeah. mechanism by which you can yeah, create that's good, that's very good, I like it and I think um, it's clearly been a, uh, fire itself is a source of inspiration let alone a tool that, that you work with you know it's clearly um, the quality of the light that comes from fire um, gazing into a fire has been a source of inspiration for people you know there's a um, there's a divination that goes with fire pyromancy mm. uh, you know, you actually to look into a fire 
and see what you see and use that as, a, as an inspiration for a creative process. this strong orange wavy glow of white heat mm. rippling the air nothing is in clear focus embers forming weird and wonderful shapes and the fire sort of dancing around like the spikes of holly leaves and it, it the ocean for me doesn't and I, and I work with ocean conservation mm. but it doesn't give me the same inspiration as, as looking into a fire does it is different isn't it well, actually, I was about to say that's where it does have a parallel with the ocean, but it doesn't. The experience of the ocean is universal for those societies and peoples that live by the ocean. Fire is something that is universal, I guess like music, to all people. Whether you live by the ocean, mm-hmm. live as far from the ocean as possible, live on top of a mountain, somewhere in that, exp- in, in, in that society's experience is going to be an experience of fire. And, and so I think it has a great unifying quality and that goes for unifying the people sitting around it and exchanging stories right through to unifying the human race because everybody has had some experience of it. I think that's really true. I like it. I was actually trying to disagree with you. I was, I was searching in my mind for cultures that don't have a relationship with fire. I wanted to look to the Inuit, mm. but they still burn blubber and heat uh, their food in that way and work with fire Mm. Um, I also wanted to disagree with you because I I kind of I'm always looking for the things that that keep us connected with the fellow animals on the planet and I I hate things that seem to separate we we have a human experience of the non-human world but fundamentally my belief is that, that we are all so similar and so related but fire does seem to me one of those things that separates us Mm. now because you explained and I was thinking yes human cultures around the world are sitting around the fire right now as we we do the same thing so it's a unifying thing I'm not sure it's something I associate with animals in the wild that's Gina's mum looking really confused (laughs) (laughs) Um. yes sitting by the fire with Colin I have lost the thread. Where were we talking? About? I think we should leave that in, though, because <laughs> we'll we'll hear Marjorie there. What are you doing, sitting by the fire? Actually, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because that was a completely adequate explanation. It was. It, yeah. de- it needed no. Marjorie was satisfied with that. But actually, it needed no. Why are you sitting with Colin by the fire? Because that actually doesn't. Is it? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. It's just well, yeah. naturally, that's what people would do. Yeah. Sit by the fire. Yeah. And so w- some wild animals will have an experience of natural fire, less so here in the United Kingdom, probably. But, you know, heather burning on upland moors still goes on um, in pursuit of a, of a shooting industry. So some wild creatures will have um, experience of that. Other wild creatures in other cultures, you mentioned North America, so some mammals will have um, an experience of that. 
Um, but largely, most wild animals will never experience natural fire. And so our choice to build it and create it and wield it and utilise it does separate us. And I don't know if there are any in, in primatology. Uh, do you know of any examples I, where, I, where primates take, take something, heat, smoke, a spark, I don't know, and, and, and use it as a tool? I, I'm not aware of anything. Mm. That's by no means a definitive response, is it? But that's a, it's something I'm interested in and I haven't come across it. Yeah. So I, it is a dividing line, I think. Uh, and if we're losing the thread a little bit, it's because Vinny, my big male cat, has just come up because he wants to be near us and near the fire. So I think it reinforces the domestic animals have a relationship with fire. I'm not sure wild animals do. Mm. And interestingly, Vinny, when I first met him, ran away from me. It was a stranger, and yet here he is. He's he's bunting my hand, right? And um, he he he's pretty keen to be close to us. Now. He's he's gone into the eighty percent storytelling mode that we that we do yes. in, as we relax around yeah. the fire. So, yeah. Uh, well, it's been great, Colin. Uh, we've sat here, and I've heard birds going by overhead. There's a tawny owl calling. Stars are in the sky. It's a, a perfect early spring evening. Let's add some more wood to the fire and stay for a while. That sounds good. Mm.